I have a question for you. And it's this. What amazes you? What is it that amazes you? I mean, when, when you see it on TV or you read about it in a book or you see it on the Internet or you watch a video on YouTube, what is it that amazes you? What do you get amazed by? Is it, um, is it some kind of scenic view? You know, just pictures of nature and uh, God's creation. Does that amaze you? Uh, maybe it's some kid on YouTube who can hopscotch and like jump on one foot for like two and a half minutes in a row. He's like, wow, that's amazing. What is it that amazes you? I don't know. What is it? What amazes you? Is it that Kobayashi guy who can eat like 400 hot dogs in one sitting? Like, what is it that, that amazes you? Something probably does. You know, all throughout the New Testament, people were amazed by Jesus. But usually they were not amazed with him as much as they were amazed with what he did. They, they were amazed with his miracles. They were amazed with the wisdom and the power and authority with which he taught. Uh, but rarely do you see too many people who are, who are clearly simply amazed, not with what Jesus did for them or with the miracles he performed or anything like that. But they're simply amazed with Jesus, the Messiah, and simply amazed with him. At the end of today, my hope for you is that you would leave amazed by Jesus. Not by what he does for you or doesn't do for you, but, but that your faith would be in him and that you would be amazed by him. Because, friends, it's all about Jesus. It all is. All of his miracles, all the things that he accomplished, all of the wisdom with which he taught, all of the Bible you're holding or that maybe is in front of you in the pew rack in front of you this morning, it all points to Jesus and it's all about him. And if we're not going to talk about Jesus, if we're not going to preach Jesus, if we're not going to teach Jesus, we're wasting our time. And we could go do this at the golf course, right? And we could just hang out with our friends and, and do that sort of thing somewhere else. I mean, it's all about Jesus. All of it is. So with that in mind, let me pray. We're going to be in Mark chapter 6. So if you want to get ahead and uh, open your Bible, your app, whatever you've got to Mark chapter 6, you can do that now. And I'm going to pray. And then we're going to teach through uh, the first six verses of Mark chapter 6 this morning. Father, thank you for Jesus. Uh, Lord, I pray you'd help me to be amazed uh, with Jesus, not with what he does for me, the ways that he's good to me. Although those are good things to be amazed by, but ultimately might it turn my heart and my attention fully, Jesus, toward you. Jesus, help us to be amazed by you and by your mercy and by your grace and by who you are. Holy Spirit, I pray against the enemy, his servants, their works and effects. He would seek to distract us from the teaching of your word and from being changed by your word. He would seek to accuse us and to tempt us. So instead, the Holy Spirit, would you uh, take control and, and change our hearts today? And might Jesus be honored because it is truly all about him. Give us faith to believe, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Well, he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. He went away from there, Jesus did. Went away from where? 
Where do you go away from? Well, if you remember, a few weeks ago we started studying uh, this whole string of passages in Mark. Because what we're doing is we're studying the life and ministry of Jesus. We've tried to put it as best we can in chronological order through all four Gospels at the same time and work our way through. And and we've been camping out in Mark here for a little bit during this little uh, part of Jesus' life and ministry. And a, a few weeks ago we saw Jesus leave from Capernaum and he crossed the Sea of Galilee, right? And, and as he left, the, left Capernaum and, and crossed the Sea of Galilee, he came to the other side, and there he met the demoniac. He met the demoniac. Here, I can even show you a map a little bit. A few weeks ago, I could, but my, my uh, little pointer is off. But Capernaum's kind of on the top of the Sea of Galilee there, and he would have come down and to the right, and, and that's where he would have met the demoniac. But on the way, do you remember the storm comes up, it blows in over the land, and, and storm comes up, and Jesus wakes up, and he calms the storm and he gets to the other side, and the demon-possessed man comes up, and he's like, Who are you? Well, I'm legion, for we are many. This, this man was possessed by multiple evil spirits, and Jesus casts them all out into a herd of pigs that go down into the lake and drown, just like all the demons will be cast into the lake of fire in the end. And then last week we saw where Jesus comes back across the lake, and he gets back to Capernaum. And when he gets there, he gets mobbed on the shore by people wanting something from him. And uh, he heals Jairus' daughter, Jairus, the, the ruler of the synagogue. And he heals a woman who had been diseased and sick for 12 years. And he goes on after that, and he heals two men of their blindness, another man of his being mute in, Mark, in uh, Matthew chapter 9. And so he went from there, <coughs> from Capernaum, and he's heading, Mark tells us, to his hometown. Well, his hometown, you can see it there on the map, is Nazareth. And, and Jesus comes to his hometown. His home, his home base for ministry was Capernaum, but the town he grew up in was Nazareth. It was a small town, about 500 people at the most. It was a small agricultural town. It was kind of built on a, on a rocky hillside. I don't know about you. What's your hometown? Is your hometown around here? Mine isn't. My hometown, the town I grew up in, is, is Alta, this little town in Iowa, not unlike Milford. And so if I was going to go back to my hometown, I'd be going back to Alta. It'll always be my hometown, even though this is home now. That, that's my hometown. That's where I'm from. That's where Jesus was from. It's where he grew up. Everybody in the town knew him. Think about it, a small town. But Nazareth is, is really a tiny little town. It's, it's only mentioned in the New Testament 12 times, maybe a little less than that even, about a dozen times. And it's not mentioned anywhere outside of the New Testament until about 200 years later by another guy writing about the area. It was just this small, tiny, podunk, off-the-beaten-path town that Jesus grew up in. That's where he's from, and he's going back. In fact, here's the route he would have taken. You can see the yellow line there as it kind of tra- would have traced across from Capernaum to Nazareth. And you see the red line that goes up, that's called the Via Maris. It's the way of the sea, a major trade route. And Jesus would have come down through the rocky plains and gotten there and it was about a 22, 21-mile journey by foot to get from Capernaum to Nazareth. Well, he gets there, and Mark says that he went to his, came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. Now, you might read that and go, okay, so what? Well, this is an important detail. And the reason it's an important detail is because it identifies Jesus as a rabbi. It identifies him as, as someone who's traveling with his entourage of disciples. This is how itinerant rabbis would have traveled. Itinerant teachers would have traveled in that day. They would have had people alongside them who they were discipling and training. And now Jesus is not unlike that. But the reason I say this is important is because this isn't Jesus' first trip to Nazareth. 
He had been there before, not just when he grew up, but he had left and then he came back a previous time. In fact, it's in in Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, I'm just going to go ahead and read this to you, starting in verse 16. Uh, This was very early in Jesus' ministry. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath, so on a Saturday, and he stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him, and he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where this was written. He read from Isaiah. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free. And that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Then Jesus rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. And all eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. They were amazed at his teaching. And then he began to speak to them. Remember, this is his hometown. These people saw Jesus in diapers. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day, Jesus told them. Everyone spoke well of him. Hey, that guy, he grew, he grew up here. I remember him. I remember when he terrorized the neighborhood. I remember that kid. I remember him. They were amazed at him and by the gracious words that came from his lips. How can this be, they asked. Isn't this Joseph's son? We, we watched him grow up. We, we watched all that he had done. We, that's amazing that he's grown so much and to hear him teaching and to hear the gracious things that he's saying. They were impressed. Well, then Jesus responds and uh, he senses there's some who aren't impressed in a good way. He says, you will undoubtedly quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself, meaning do miracles here in your hometown like those you did in Capernaum. But I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his hometown, Jesus said. Certainly there will be many many needy widows. He goes on to quote this Old Testament passage and he's pointing out to them that their lack of faith is going to do them in. That their lack of trusting Jesus and their lack of, of really believing who he is and repenting of their sin and turning to him in faith ultimately will be the end of them. And when they heard this, the people in the synagogue, verse 28, were furious. So they went from praising him to now they're angry because they heard something they didn't want to hear. Jumping up, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of the hill on which the town was built. They intended to push him over the cliff, but he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. Then Jesus went to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and he taught there in the synagogue every Sabbath day. So on Jesus' first trip back home, after he starts his ministry, he gets there, reads from Isaiah. Everybody's like, oh, wow. And then he goes, you're wowing now, but I'm telling you, you're all going to reject me. You're all going to reject me. And they get angry to hear about this and to hear uh, about God's judgment potentially on them. And, and so they chase him to the edge of town on, the, on this cliff, and they're going to shove him off and kill him, but he makes it out. So his last trip home, they tried to kill him. Now Jesus decides, would you go back home? If you, you know, I mean, if you went home and then people tried to kill you and you came back for a year or two, would you go back home again? I don't know if I would. If I knew people were gunning for me at home, I think I'd probably just stay here. But Jesus goes back. He goes back to Capernaum, or to Nazareth from Capernaum and This time he brings his disciples with him because last time they tried to kill him. This time he's going to point out, listen, I'm a rabbi. See, here's my disciples. And then he's going to wait to teach until the Sabbath. Look, on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him this second time were astonished. Same as the first time, saying, where did this man get these things? What's the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? I mean, they had heard of all the things Jesus had done. Capernaum is not that far away. 
Cana is not that far away where he had turned water into wine. They knew about Jesus' miracles. And they heard him and they were astonished. His wisdom, his mighty works, it captivates the people again. And the reality is that that Jesus' wisdom and his teaching probably astonished them in a way that's maybe more profound than we realize because think about it. In that day, the Jewish people had uh, more teachers, more learned people, more uh, rabbis who, who really knew and understood God's word and taught well than, than probably any other culture. And so in other words, what I'm saying is the area in which uh, Jesus excelled in his profession and stood out in front of everyone else as a teacher was crowded <laughs> and, and it was competitive and there were a lot of good teachers and there were a lot of good rabbis. And so for them to look at Jesus and go, Wow, that means he really stood out. They were really astonished at the skill with which he taught and the words of wisdom that came from his mouth. But his presence, in this sense, was a dilemma to him because they knew him when he was little. They knew he didn't train under another rabbi. They knew that he just he grew up a carpenter's son. He grew up swinging a hammer with his daddy. There's nothing really special about how did he learn all these things? And so as you start to understand that, you start to realize that their astonishment wasn't so much an astonishment like, wow, what a good teacher. It was like, where does he get off saying that? He's not that smart. I saw him grow up. I know what he is like. He hasn't studied under a rap. What is this wisdom he has? Where did he get these things? How did mighty works come from his hands? They they weren't amazed in a good way. See, in Capernaum, they were amazed at Jesus in a good way. But in Nazareth now, they're amazed uh, not with astonishment in a good way, but with derision and with criticism. Look, they go on. They're skeptical. They they attempt to discredit his ministry. Look at verse 3. Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And aren't all his sisters here with us? Isn't this the carpenter, they say? This is where, by the way, we learned that Jesus was likely a carpenter. In Matthew's account of this passage, he says, isn't this the son of the carpenter? See, Jesus' earthly dad, Joseph, uh, Joseph swung a hammer for a living. He was a carpenter. Literally, that word in the Greek means uh, somebody who creates things. And it could be a carpenter in the sense of, of out of wood, but it could also refer to somebody who's a stonemason. Uh, Because wood wasn't exactly plentiful in that area, but stone was all over the place. So it's likely when we think of Jesus as a carpenter, he he wasn't just carving things and building things out of wood, but he was likely also carving things and building things out of stone. He was a strong dude. And and he worked hard. But isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this the guy who makes or produces things with his dad? In other words, isn't he just a carpenter? Not somebody who's educated and who can teach. He's not so special. Why should I listen to him? Do you ever discredit people that way? We do, don't we? We're just like the people in Nazareth. I don't know if I want to listen to them. They don't really have a whole lot of education. The flip side's true, too. I don't know if I want to listen to them. They've got too much education. (laughs) They're educated beyond their intelligence. I don't want to listen to them either. Or uh, maybe it's not their education. Maybe it's, boy, they're, I don't know if I want to listen to them. They're too young. I don't know if I want to listen to her. She's, she's too old. 
Really, that's just a nice way of saying all of these. They're not like me. (laughs) And I'm at the center of my complaints when I complain that way, isn't it? But yet that's how they complain about Jesus. Isn't he just a carpenter? But the real skepticism shows up not just calling him a carpenter, but in the next line. Look what they say. They call him the son of Mary. And you're like, well, why is that such a big deal? He was, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. His mom was Mary. But normally a man in Jewish culture was referred to not as the son of their mother, but the son of their father. Um, Judaism is, is a, a patronomic culture. In, in other words, your lineage is important and your surname, it's traced through your father. And, and where we have surnames, like my last name is Wyland. I don't know what your last name is. Oh, I do, many of you, but you know what I'm saying. It, it, that's how I trace my lineage. And that all comes back through my father, right? That was my dad's last name, and that was his dad's last name, and that was his dad's last name, and it just kind of comes down. That's how you got your last name, likely. Well, in that day, it wasn't so much a second name, a surname. It was, uh, I would be Josh, the son of Anthony. That's who I'd be in that culture. And, and so your, your name was traced by your father's name. And, and Jesus is the son of who? The son of David. That traces his lineage. That's his family line. And, and is, is, is a messianic and royal line. Well, in this case, they don't call him the son of Joseph like they did the first time he was there. In Luke chapter 4, this time they call him... Isn't this the son of Mary, the carpenter, the son of Mary? And there was a certain amount of insult implied with this title. They were insulting him. They were calling him a son of a woman, and that wasn't normal in Judaism. It was insulting. It was illegitimizing him. And in fact, I mean, calling him the son of a woman rather than the son of his father... There's a similar phrase I won't recite, but that we use in our, our culture that derides people. And in a sense, that's what's happening here. The son of Mary? We read that, we don't think a big deal out of it, but really it was a term of derision for him. And, and insult towards him. And, and remember, it brought up for them, remember this is Mary and Joseph's hometown too. And remember how Mary got pregnant? It was through the power of the Holy Spirit, right? She was a virgin. But, but what happens, uh, she was engaged to Joseph at the time. And she gets pregnant, finds out, an angel tells her. She runs off to be with her, her relative, probably her aunt or cousin Elizabeth. And then comes back home and tells everybody she's pregnant three months later. And what did everybody, everybody goes, really? Well, that's interesting. It's Joseph especially. I thought we were engaged to be married. Didn't know that could happen. And he plans to divorce her quietly. Imagine how did her father respond to that? How did everybody else in town respond well, Joseph, by God's grace, an angel appears to him and says, Hey, believe her. Listen, this is what happened. She's still a virgin. She didn't cheat on you. But, but everybody else in town, probably always for the rest of their lives in that small town, pegged them and pegged Jesus as the bastard child. And remember how he was born? Oh, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you, about, let me tell you this story. And all through, through all 30 years of his life, that was the story that just went around town, went around town, went around town. And so now they bring it up again, the son of Mary. And there had to be some sting there. And we know you're yeah, born, born of the Holy Spirit, right? Yeah, your mom was a virgin. Mm-hmm. Sure. Heard that one. There was this insult towards him in calling him that. And Mary and Joseph would have lived with it as well. But isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary? And look, they're like, we also know his family. The brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. And are not his sisters here with us? Along with Mary mentions made of his brothers and sisters. Did you know Jesus had brothers and sisters? He was the oldest brother. He was the oldest. 
And, and, and after him, Mary did not remain a virgin forever after giving birth to Jesus. Uh, she had a, a normal family along with Joseph. And Jesus has at least four brothers. They're listed here. And at least two sisters because it's sisters plural. Maybe he had more than that. They're not mentioned probably by name, likely because they're married at this point. But, but his family's there. We know who this is. This is his, there's, there's nothing special about him is what they're saying. And Jesus' family, only two of his brothers that we know of for sure end up coming to faith. Maybe all of them did, but, but for sure James and, and Judas, they wrote books of the Bible, James and Jude. But look at the end of this. They took offense at him. The point is, we, we know this guy. We've known him since diapers, and they took offense at him. Their astonishment was different than the astonishment in other places where they're like, wow, look at what he's done. And they're amazed in a good way. They're, they're amazed in a, in a bad way. And this idea, this term offense in the Greek, if you could see it, really what it means is stumbling block. He became a stumbling block to them. He became a stumbling block to their faith. They couldn't get over the fact that they had seen him grow up. They couldn't get over the fact that they, they just didn't believe what he said. They didn't believe him. They took offense. And so look what Jesus does. Jesus says to them, he said to them, excuse me, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. So he's like, listen, no, nobody dishonors a prophet. Uh, prophets receive great honor in God's kingdom and among God's people except for where they grew up. Because <laughs> in their hometown, nobody respects them. Not only in their hometown, but he narrows it down. He narrows down the circles, not just Nazareth, but in his household. In other words, his extended family. Uh, among his, or excuse me, among his relatives and then in his own household with his immediate family. So for Jesus, his hometown, his family, his extended family, all of them were rejecting him. Now, some of you, we've talked about this before, but that's your story. You came to faith in Jesus. And then you went and told your family about it. And your family went, whoa, <laughs> step back a second. Step down off the crazy train. Jesus' parents, or Jesus' mom and his brothers did this earlier in Mark, in chapter 3, verse 21 and following, later in, in 31 and following. And, and they, they go searching for him. They're like, he's out of his mind. He's gone crazy. He's, he's gone way too far with this whole church thing. He's gone way too far with this whole God thing. We've got to go get him and bring him back home. Some of you have experienced that. You've put your faith in Jesus and your family's rejected you. They're astonished at you, but not in a good way. And, and see, the reason for this is because ultimately they're not offended by you. They're offended by Jesus. He's become an offense to them. He's a stumbling block to them. He is. He is. And, and what I would encourage you is to recognize that while that's really hard... Your first family is your church family because this is the family, those who have trusted Jesus, who are going to be with you for eternity. For eternity. Now, I hope your biological family is part of your first family. But ultimately, this is the family that you'll be with forever. You're like, I don't know if I want to do that then. Looking around. I'm just joking. But, but this is your first family, right? These are the, this is who we're doing life with. We're following Jesus. This is your first family. I hope your biological family is a part of it, but if it's not, and I hope they become a part of it, but until then, you need to know you're in good company because this was Jesus' experience. 
His family rejected him. As I was writing about this, thinking about this reading, this came to mind actually even just this morning. Five, six years ago, so maybe this, if you're in this spot, this would encourage you. Five, six years ago, I was reading, uh, actually, I was just really struggling in ministry. The ministry's hard. And, and like any other job, you get tired of it. And you go, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. And you just kind of hit the wall and you go, um, does it really matter what I'm doing? Does anybody really, and you're hearing the pity party that goes on in my head sometimes. You probably have them too with whatever your job is, right? I, I'm guessing. I mean, any, anything I've been in life, that, that sort of happens and we get turned to ourselves. And th- does anybody really care? And I, I was missing home. Because my hometown is in Iowa. My family was in Iowa, Minnesota. I think it was right after my, my youngest, next youngest brother got married. Feeling like some of my relationships with my brothers and with uh, my family, my mom and dad had been strained and, and even kind of lost because I had left. Maybe this has been your experience too. I mean, when I first became a Christian, there was a real strain between me and my family. And I just remember, I remember that time. I, I was standing in the kitchen and uh, I was praying. I was just, I was pretty emotional. Sorry, start crying a little bit now. But I, I remember just crying and, and I opened up God's word. I'm praying to him. I'm just like, what do I do? And this has never happened to me before. And, and I would never commend to you, like, just take God's word and open it up and look, what do you see? Right? Because I've told you that joke. You'll end up like the guy who's really struggling. He opens it up. He points and he finds Judas went and hung himself. And he's like, oh, that's not good. So then he opens up and he finds the other verse where Jesus says, now go and do likewise. The bad plan. But don't do that, right? But, but this, is, this is the one case I can tell you that for whatever reason, God did this for me. And, and maybe he would do this for you right now if you're in that spot. Because I know some of you who are. But I opened up and I came to Matthew uh, chapter 19. Peter said this to Jesus. He says, we've given up everything to follow you. So what will we get? And Jesus replied, sorry, I didn't expect to get emotional thinking about this again. Jesus replied this, though. He said, I assure you that when the world is made new, and maybe he would speak these things to you too, and the Son of Man sits upon his glorious throne, you will have been you who have been my followers will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He says that to Peter and to the 12. But then he says this, and this is what he might say to you if you're struggling with this. And everyone who's given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and inherit eternal life. And many who are the greatest now will be least important then. And those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. Amen. And, and, and Jesus had this, this place where his family just rejected him because of following him. And, and maybe you followed Jesus and your family's rejected you. Listen, you have an eternal family in your church who loves you. And I would encourage you to get connected then with this family, with your first family. Don't neglect your biological family, but get connected here. Everyone needs a friend. Get connected in a 110 group somehow. And live that out and be encouraged by the fact that Jesus says, even if they reject you now, listen, in the end, it'll be good. Sorry, I, I know that's a little bit of a, a tangent, but it was just kind of one of those things that God pressed on my heart this morning. And, and maybe there's some of you struggling with that today. So Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. His hometown, his relatives, his family had been exposed to him, but, but their exposure to Jesus didn't lead to faith. 
And the exposure to the gospel, if you hear the gospel over and over, and you hear about Jesus over and over and over, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to come to faith in him. In fact, sometimes the more you're exposed to it, the more your heart becomes hardened to it. And that was the case in the life of those in Nazareth and in Jesus' family. Their familiarity with Jesus kind of bred contempt towards him. Does your familiarity with the gospel breed contempt towards God? Is it still amazing to you that Jesus died on the cross for your sin? That you're so messed up that you deserve hell, that I deserve hell, but Jesus in his grace lived a perfect life and died for you on the cross. Listen, if if that doesn't stir something in your heart and you go, wow, and you're amazed at Jesus and what he's done for you, you need to take some time and do a little heart check and go, uh, has, has my heart just grown so cold that I, I'm not even affected by the truth of the gospel? That's his grace toward you. Today, if you'd hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Don't become so familiar with the truth that you go, yeah, I get it. Big deal. Who cares? <laughs> it's a big deal. It is a big deal. Well, look, Jesus said, uh, about a prophet is, is not without honor except in his hometown among his relatives and own household. And look what Mark says then about this. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Mark says Jesus could no, do no mighty work in Nazareth. He couldn't do a mighty work there. Why? Well, first off, before we answer that, why? I want to tell you, this is, this is Mark pointing to Jesus' humanity. All of Jesus' miracles, all that he did in ministry, it was done through the power of the Holy Spirit, I believe, working through him. Jesus never pulled out his God card and said, uh, all right, I'm taking over now. Here we go. No, he lived fully in his humanity so that he could die on the cross in our place. And the Holy Spirit worked through him perfectly because he was without sin. And, and we see his humanity. He couldn't do a mighty work there. Mark describes Jesus' humanity over and over, but in this distance, he could do no mighty work there. Why? We'll keep reading. Look at verse 6. He marveled because, and he marveled, Jesus marveled, because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching after that. Jesus marveled. Your translation might say he was amazed at their unbelief. And now we're kind of getting to the point of this whole message and this whole passage. Last week, I made the statement that that God's power in your life is unleashed by faith, right? Like you have a dog on a leash. Why do you put a dog on a leash? So it can only get so far. And at that point, it hits the leash and it gets whipped back, right? Until what? Somebody unleashes it. And then you say, sick them, and they go, right? And they go. Well, God's power is like that. In a certain sense, it's on a tether or on a leash. And it's faith that unleashes his power in your life, both to save you and to do good towards you. We saw it last week, right? The woman who comes up behind Jesus and she reaches out in faith after bleeding for 12 years. And she reaches out in faith towards Jesus, just on her face, just to touch the hem of his garment. And then what happens? Her faith, Jesus told her, it wasn't that you touched me. It was that your faith made you well. Your faith, it was was her faith. That's the reason she experienced God's power in her life. Because she trusted him. She put her faith, her trust in him. Well, God's power is unleashed by faith. And you see it over and over and over throughout scripture. Sadly, many times people, and even we do, we wrongly think that God's power is unleashed and his favor is unleashed not through faith, but some other way, like through uh, good works. 
you know why God hasn't blessed me yet? I haven't helped enough old ladies cross the street. That's why. I, ha- I haven't done enough good things for my neighbor. I haven't got... Listen, you should do good works. You're made for good works. But that doesn't unleash God's power in your life. Or, or instead of that, they think, oh, going to church. I'm just going to... It's been a rough stretch. I better get to church. Yeah, you ought to. You ought to. But not because it's been a rough stretch, but because of who Jesus is and what he, what he does for you all the time. If, if you think somehow by coming to church, that's going to unleash God's power, boy, you're, you're going to go home disappointed. I'm sorry. And, and it's not uh, a lack of bad work. Sometimes we think it's good work. Sometimes we think, oh, God's power is unleashed by a lack of bad works in my life. Just a moral living. I'm not as, not as bad as that guy. One pew over, Josh, him. Right? You know, I'm not as bad as that guy. No, that, that doesn't unleash God's power in your life either. Neither does religion. God says it's faith. See, look, Ephesians, Paul writes this. For by grace you've been saved through what? Let me hear you say it. Through what? Faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one can boast. Jesus said at one point, he said, uh, because of your little faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. God uses, he responds to our faith. I don't know why he chooses to do that, but he does, because he doesn't want to just be, well, I do. He doesn't want to just be the genie in the bottle that we rub and we say, hey, uh, Jesus, give me this. Because you know what that does? That makes you the master of Jesus, not him the master of you. When he's a genie in the bottle that you just get whatever you want, by doing whatever, you know, by going through the motions, that puts you at the center, not Jesus. Faith is when Jesus is the center, and I turn to him, and I trust him, and he's the one who does the work. And when he sees me looking at him and trusting him, he goes, and he unleashes his power in our lives, both to save you and to do good towards you. Well, if, if faith unleashes God's power, a lack of it then will also hinder his ability, both to save you and to bless you. In this case, the lack of faith of the people of Nazareth kept the Holy Spirit from unleashing power through Jesus. You know, Mark writes, Jesus could do no mighty work there. But listen, he could do no mighty work because he would not do a mighty work because of their lack of faith. Because of their lack of faith. He would not. He wasn't going to respond to faithlessness. A lack of faith turns Jesus, again, like I said, into the genie in the bottle and it puts us at the center, not him. Now, clearly, he did do a few miracles. You thought maybe I just skipped over that part, right? He, he did do a few miracles in, in Nazareth. He, he, he healed some sick people who came to him. But there was only a few, evidently, then, who exercised their faith and had God's power unleashed in them. God's desire is to respond to your faith, to build your faith, and, and to help you trust him. He wants you, he wants us as a church to live by faith. I don't know about you, but sadly, I know people like the people of Nazareth who they see God do incredible things like, wow, that's cool. And they're just amazed and they just see it like, oh, wow. And they they see it in the life of their spouse. They see it in the life of their family members. They see it in their church, but it's all just neatly packaged and rationalized away. But Jesus ultimately is despised. And how do I know this? Because when you talk to people and they start talking, remember I asked you a little earlier at the very beginning, I said, what amazes you? And when you talk to people and their faith isn't in Jesus, but, but they're, they've, they've relegated Jesus to the genie in the bottle and it's just a part of their life and really they're at the center. Everything that they praise, that they're astonished with, isn't Jesus, but it's something ultimately that they love. 
It's something they love. Or the thing that they're, not, that they're astonished with in a bad way is, be, is something that they dislike. It's, it's not necessarily Jesus. Some people, you know, when they, they come to our church, they're amazed by the music. And some are amazed in a good way. Others in a not-so-good way. They don't like the music. Some are amazed by the decor. They, they like the way things look. They don't like the way things look. Some are amazed by friendly people. Again, in a good way or a bad way. Everybody was kind to me. Nobody talked to me. They're, they're ama- and all of it centers on them. Some are amazed at, at my teaching. And some, some would say, oh, it's great teaching. Others would say, no, nah, he's, he's out there. I don't, I, don't, I don't care for that. But at the center of all their praise or criticism is them. It's what they like, what they dislike. They're amazed at, at how it affects them, not at who Jesus is. Not at who Jesus is. What are you amazed by? Are, is it centered on you or is it centered on Jesus? That's the key. Again, God's desire is to respond to your faith. Be amazed by him. And this isn't a command just for you as an individual, but for us as a body to have faith. And we're going to define what faith looks like here in just a second talking a lot about it. Let's get it on paper and talk about it here in a second. But it's, it's not just you as an individual. It's us as a church body. It's all of us living by faith. Do you know why you're sitting in a pew right now? You know why that seat is there? You know, it's because 25, 30 years ago, there was a group of people that had great faith. And some of them are even here today still. They had great faith that God was going to do something incredible uh, in his church right here in Milford. And they gave, and they gave, and they gave both of their time and of their talent to build this place and of their treasure to fund it. And it's 30 years ago that their faith is what you're sitting on, ultimately. And what's neat is we're going to get the opportunity. I'm just kind of prepping you, priming the pump here. But in the fall, we're going to turn 30 years old. Do you know that? And we're going to have the opportunity by faith, uh, hopefully this fall sometime, Uh, to put our faith into action as a group again and ensure 30 years from now, the next generation that's back there with Pastor Dan has the opportunity to do the same thing. And and hopefully, we we haven't touched this room, I know. I mean, I'm just talking some physical things. There's more than that. But I'm talking about that in terms of faith of giving. Uh, Do you give by faith? How is faith demonstrated in your life? Let me quit rambling and just talk. What is true biblical faith? And we'll kind of close here. Faith is this. I've given you this definition before. I received it from my pastor uh, at the, the church I went to when I was at, at Moody Bible Institute in college 15 years ago. And it, it's, it's just stuck with me ever since the first day I heard it. Faith is this. It's believing God's word. I'm going to give it to you in pieces. Number one, faith is believing God's word. It's believing it. What does that mean? What does God's word say? Well, God's word says uh, you should put your faith in Jesus. You should be amazed by Jesus. You should trust in his grace and in his power to save you. You should believe that. Yes, you should. You should also believe God's word in the sense of how it tells you uh, how you ought to live in light of what Jesus has done for you. Part, Part one of your faith is simply believing God's word. But there's more to it than just your head believing it. It's believing God's word and acting upon it. See, Jesus' little brother James, he writes this. He says, faith without works is what? Dead. In other words, it's useless. It's useless because true faith uh, plays itself out in action. It plays itself out in action. Like the woman last week who was diseased, her faith in Jesus played it out in action, right? How? She reached out to grab the hem of his garment. 
If you're believing God's word that, that he has saved you, that Jesus, you know what your action, your first action is? It's to repent and to turn to Jesus and to trust him. If you've been following, then your, your first action again is to repent because you still sin, but then do what he tells you to do. It's believing God's word. It's acting upon it. Now, here's the key part right here, I think. At least for me, maybe not you, but it is for me. No matter how I feel. <laughs> do you ever have days you just don't feel like it? I don't feel like it today. I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. No matter how you feel. You might add to that, no matter if it makes sense. I believe God's word and I act upon it. Even if it doesn't make sense, no matter how I feel. Why? Well, because God promises a good result. He does. Read the end of Romans chapter 8. Paul writes, he says that uh, all things will work to good for those who are called according to his purposes. Now, that doesn't mean tomorrow. That doesn't mean later today. That doesn't even necessarily mean next year. But it does mean sometime, at some point in the future, everything's going to work to your good if you trust Jesus. And there's one piece I've added. This is from, all from Pastor James McDonald. The one thing I added to the end is just a reminder. And by the way, God keeps all of his promises. He has yet to renege on one. Believe God's word. Act upon it. No matter how you feel, God promises a good result, and he keeps all his promises. You know, the people in Nazareth, they didn't believe. They had unbelief. Jesus was amazed at their unbelief. They didn't believe his word. They didn't act upon it. They, they trust what they felt rather than what was true. And instead of a good result, they got a bad one. You know, there's, we'll close with this. You know, there's two times in the Bible where Jesus is amazed with people. Two times. First is in Matthew chapter 8. In Matthew chapter 8, uh, Jesus enters Capernaum and a centurion, a Roman official, comes forward to him, appealing to him. Here's what he said. He said, Jesus, my, my servant, he called him Lord, actually, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, well, I'll come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too, I'm a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, he goes and to another come and he comes and to my servant, do this. And he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. In other words, he was amazed. It's that same word. And he said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus was amazed at the centurion's faith. I told you there's two times Jesus is amazed. Once was there. The second time is this passage this morning in verse six of Mark chapter six. Uh, and he marveled. He was amazed because not of their faith, but their lack of faith, their unbelief. Jesus is amazed by faith and he's amazed by a lack of it. And so that leads me to this final comment. And then we'll pray. Lucas will come lead us. We'll sing. But hear this. You need to know Jesus is amazed by you. Whether you're amazed by him or not, he's amazed by you. He is. The only question that's left is what about you is he amazed by? Is he amazed by your faith or by your lack of it? Let me pray. Father, thanks for Jesus. And uh, thank you that he's good and he's gracious. Jesus, I pray you'd help me to be a man of faith, to trust you, to believe your word every word of it, and to act on it, even the days and the times and the moments I don't feel like it because I am sinful and I do fail. Jesus, you promise a good result when I obey, when I believe you and trust you.
You keep all your promises. Help us uh, as individuals to do that. Help us as a church to do that. Father, I pray for those today who've maybe never taken that first step of faith and have never uh, repented of their sin and believed, Jesus, you are who you said you were, that you are their only hope. You are the way, the truth, the life, that no one will be saved apart from you. I pray that they would believe that and they would take action on it. And today they might repent and turn to you in faith and not be found in unbelief like the people in Nazareth. Father, thanks for your grace to us. Help us trust you more, I pray. All this in Jesus' name, amen.